0: Good morning Northbrook. This morning we're going to finish out uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and start chapter 3 together. So our text is 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 all the way through chapter 3 verse 9. Remind them then of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, who, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Herminius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, well, it's a joy to be with you all today. I'm Jake Ledet, one of the pastors here. Um, And yes, for Mother's Day, we're going to talk about the theme, the idea from 2 Timothy here of gospel usefulness. And this doesn't apply just to mothers. Uh, But if you think, I don't know how you feel like that does hit or doesn't hit with Mother's Day, but at least it's better than the last couple years. Uh, last year, I think we talked about hypocrisy on Mother's Day, because it's where we were at in the Sermon on the Mount. And the year before that, we talked about sexual immorality. There was no connection uh, between the topic and the day. And I did kind of go back and regret that, as I was thinking. I, it was literally one of those things. This shows you how much confidence you can have in me. Uh, but I was a, we were in the park, And I I think so, two years ago were we in that moment, but I'm like, here we go, what else are we going to do besides this? Uh, So today, wherever it hits or not, it's at least a little better than those last couple years um, for Mother's Day. So I did want to explain real quick, uh, acknowledge one of the ways that I've been using the word uh, gospel. Uh, First of all, if you don't know this, gospel is a noun, it's a thing. Uh, But I am using it as uh, an adjective uh, against probably every English teacher's wishes. Um, But I'm doing it throughout this series. You know, we talked about gospel encouragement the first week, a gospel reminder, gospel leadership, and then today, gospel usefulness. And and I want to just kind of explain myself here. Again, the gospel is a thing. It's it's something that has happened. It's good news. Uh, The gospel is good news for all humanity that the, the reality that God did not leave us in our rebellion and our sin, but saw us in our rebellion and sin. And he didn't wipe us out, but he actually drew near. Like this is what the, the totality of the Bible is about, that God, God draws near to the, the hurting, the broken, the sinner. Like God draws near. And so we, we see this, that, and he draws so near that, that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus, to uh, put on his divinity, humanity. That he, he became one of us. He, he lived, he laughed, he drank, he ate. Um, he, he became a person like you and me, partly so that he could relate. So that's what Hebrews tells us that, that when we cry out to Jesus, we cry out to a faithful high priest who knows. He, he's not foreign to our struggles, he's not foreign even to the temptation we experience. He's only foreign to the sin that we give into. Uh, and this is the beauty of the gospel that, that Jesus did that, again, not just so that he could relate, but also so that he, he willingly laid down his life uh, to really be the, the, the recipient of the most unjust act that has ever or will ever happen. There, there's been one person that's been born that's been completely innocent and remained completely innocent through the entirety of his life, and yet he died a criminal's death, and that's the Lord Jesus but, but the Lord, the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus so that he could pour out his love on people like you and me. Again, this is the beauty of the gospel, that, that the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin, for our rebellion, Jesus took on. So that only when we put our faith in him and find ourselves hidden in him, we get to enjoy the love of God. Um, Again, this, this is the good news uh, of the gospel. And so when I say gospel leadership, when I say gospel usefulness, using it as an adjective is, is the hope uh, of saying those things in the life of the Christian should flow from that truth. They, they flow from what God has done for us in the gospel. That, that as Christians, we can no longer think of being useful or being a leader or being encouraging separate from the gospel. Uh, that, that that's it's the it's what explains all of life. It's what makes sense of life. It is our worldview. There's lots of worldviews out there for the Christian. The gospel is our worldview. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to uh, push us towards and encourage us in. Um, again, this is what the, the story the Bible is is telling from beginning to end. It, it isn't a story of, hey, you need to be better. But it's the story of, again, you can't be better in our generation in our culture because most of us don't believe it and most people don't believe it but even the gospel is not a story of God's wrath mainly it's actually a story of being saved from God's wrath like he made a way that we could be saved from the right just punishment that everyone deserves um Again, this isn't like what we naturally think, like, oh, if I'm a good Christian, I'm just going to be a little better, as opposed to, no, if I'm a good Christian, I realize what I deserve and what God has not given me, but that he poured on Christ, and because of him, I can be accepted, that in our pride, we can be humbled. I mean, even just look at all the pictures in the Bible of uh, the adulterer finding a faithful husband. Uh, the, those that are thirsty in the desert, finding drink. The, the prostitute, finding healing. The demon-possessed, finding wholeness. Like, this is the, the beauty. This is weak and needy people that represent every one of us finding our wholeness. Not that we got our act together, not that we figured it out, but that Jesus gave it as his gift. That, that Again, just him receiving that unjust punishment, him being perfect. And now he says, here, it's yours. It's it's yours. You get to have it. Come, anyone, anyone can have it. Uh, This is what I mean. What we mean. What the Bible means when it talks about the gospel. John three seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so when Paul is writing to Timothy, saying all that you do flows from this gospel. All that you do, this is what Paul's encouragement to Timothy is, all that you do flows from this gospel. And this gospel is not something that you created or earned, but it was given to you. You get to receive it. And once we do that, it should, and it needs to impact every aspect of our life. The way you encourage people, what you remind them of, how you think about leadership, how you understand being useful, how to disciple others, and even how to be a pastor in Paul and Timothy's case. It all flows from the gospel. Uh, Again, so when I use the gospel as an adjective, um, that's what I'm trying to help us understand. And so as we come to today, again, we're thinking about usefulness and how it flows from believing in the gospel. Last week, we talked about uh, leadership, kind of a particular role. But this week, we kind of broaden out and thinking about what does it mean to be useful in whatever role we're in as a mother, as a father, as a friend, as a co-worker, uh, whatever that role is. What does it look like uh, to be useful in that role and um, last week, Paul, if you remember, he used kind of these three back-to-back metaphors. He talked about a soldier. Uh, he talked about a farmer. He talked about an athlete. And then this week, he's going to use two more metaphors that kind of depict uh, what it means to be uh, useful for the sake of the gospel. But in 2 Timothy 2.7, when he used those three metaphors, he said this. He said, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And I think as we, when, when anybody uses a metaphor, when you read a poem, if you read poetry or if you read a story that has a metaphor in it, you're all of a sudden faced with the reality of, what does this mean? I don't know. This is an example of something. What is it an example of and what is it, how does it apply uh, to my life? And the Bible has a ton of metaphors. So it actually means a couple things. Like Paul's using those three metaphors and he's saying, hey, this, this is something you actually have to think about. This is something you have to consider. This is something that's not readily available readily accessible you're not actually going to help you understand uh, what i'm saying here but it's not just easy and quick and so that's what these metaphors today uh, we're going to think about them and consider what they mean uh, for our actual lives um, and the two workers he's going to, the two metaphors he's going to use today is a worker and vessels in a great house. So let's look at the first one in verses 14 through 19. And if you think about, man, all of this, how are we going to get through all of this scripture? Well, you maybe not know this, but it's actually my birthday today. And the only thing I asked for, thank you, was to preach for an hour. And so I'm just joking. Wow. (laughs) I swear I felt like no one said it out loud, but it was like this internal gasp. Uh, uh, No, we'll go through a lot of verses in some amount of time. But anyways, uh, verse 14. Uh, remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now here's the metaphor in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the Lord depart from iniquity. And so here's the metaphor, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. And so the, the obviously the contrast to that is a worker who is ashamed like there's there's this positive and negative uh, examples and we we all have jobs so we've all had jobs and we've all done shameful things in those jobs don't lie you know you've done things that you like oh man i hope no one knows i did that or hope not in this job i'm yeah i'm great i don't have anything to be ashamed about uh <laughs> but we've done things in jobs maybe it is a job we have right now maybe it is a job we've had in the past where we haven't done we haven't held up our end of the bargain we've tried to get away with something we there's in certain jobs there's cultures that embrace this kind of idea i worked for the post office for 12 years <laughs> i've talked to so many people it's like hey don't do that quickly you get paid the same amount either way i'm like that's not healthy uh but um but that's it's like a culture that embraces kind of wrongdoing and 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 poor work Uh, and there's those cultures exist in all kinds of different places but then whether their culture is there or not we've all done bad things Uh, and we and I say this because like it it feels something like when he's given us an example that helps us feel a certain way when we put in a good day's honest day's work we go home and we actually feel pretty good about it we've gotten encouraged maybe from a coworker, maybe our boss commended us maybe a hard task we just finally pressed through and and got it done Versus that thing that we, that day where we went to work and, oh, we didn't do that thing we were supposed to do, or we did this instead of that, or, oh man, I don't, I don't know that I talked to that person in the right way, or I don't know that I, I handled this situation the right way, and, and we know how that feels. And actually, that's what Paul is inviting us into. He's saying, feel that. This, this worker, this worker that doesn't need to be ashamed, that's what we're uh, supposed to be feeling. Again, the simple reality is what Paul is trying to put before us. We tend to feel good about good work and ashamed when things at work don't go well. That's kind of a just a reality. Um, and so this is the metaphor that Paul is using to describe how we are to present ourselves before God. So he's saying this is how like a good worker, that day when we feel good about ourselves, this is how we want to present ourselves uh, before God. And he's not talking about although obviously it makes sense, not in the end times, not when we stand before God at the end of all things or uh, as we go on from this life, but he's talking about daily, like how we daily present ourselves before God. So one, that would be even a thing. Are we even daily considering how we're presenting ourselves before God? Do we even think about God in that kind of way? Like, oh, I just lived all of my life before the face of God. I just lived all of this last day before God and who he is and what he says and the gospel that he's invited me into. I've just done all of this before him. How have I presented myself uh, before him? Again, this is what uh, Paul is inviting us into. And then he just obviously talks about all the positive things that a good worker does. Verse 14, he simply reminds people of the gospel. He says, remind people of these things. And that's what he's just talked about. The beauty of who God is and what he has done for us. If you look just back in verse 8, again, this is one of the things that, we're, that Paul is telling Timothy to remind people of. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So one of the things that Paul says a good worker does is remind others of the gospel. That's what he is calling us to. That's what he's encouraging us to. It's a simple reality. Another thing he's encouraging us towards is uh, he tells Timothy not to quarrel about words. And, and we're going to see even a juxtaposition between these two things, the good things in, the, in this metaphor and the next metaphor, and then the, the kind of wrong things he's warn, warning us from. But, but this one, tell people not to quarrel about words. And so we're supposed to remind people of something that is words, the gospel, but we're supposed to tell people that, hey, stop arguing about words. Um, and so we're supposed to use our words to direct people in a particular way and kind of warn, warn people from uh, words that are unhelpful. And here, here's the picture here. I think what Paul is is constantly correcting teaching, correcting heresy, and he sees all the good and bad of it and all the in between. And he's like, man, there's people that are just going to talk about words till they go to their grave. And he's like, man, just, it's not helpful. Remind them that there's, there's actually something to be reminded about, and it's the beauty of the gospel. I, I love uh, Richard Sibbs. He's an old Puritan, uh, maybe not as well-read as others, but he's so, so encouraging. Um, he, he says this, That age of the church, which was most fertile and subtle questions, was most barren in religion. He's meaning religion in a good way. For it makes people think religion to be only a matter of cleverness and tying and untying of knots. The brains of men inclining that way are hotter usually than their hearts. And, and, and so when we find ourselves, I mean, again, this is something we can, you know, think about, debating, considering, again, not all of that's bad, but just kind of this constant tying and untying of knots, and just track how warm our heart is to Jesus. Like that's, that's a good measure of this unfruitful conversation versus fruitful conversation and what warms our hearts what what brings us nourishment Uh, it's the beauty of who christ is and again to be reminded of the gospel Uh, and even that can fall flat on our hearts and minds uh, but then something's gone off in us not in the gospel so remind people of the gospel hey don't quarrel about words and then obviously rightly handle paul isn't saying you can make the bible say whatever you think uh, so stop arguing about it. You know, that's a common date. Like, hey, I've, I've talked to many people. It's like, oh, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And to be honest with you, that's completely true. You can take any book. You can take any novel and use those words to really kind of say whatever you want to say. But you know what's true about those books? That author actually had some intent. He actually meant something by those words. And I may get that right or I may get that wrong. And the Bible is the exact same way. We may, I may get it wrong. You may get it Right. But God meant something. And there is a right way to handle what God means to say and a wrong way to handle it. And some of us don't even get there because we're like, oh, you can just say, it can just say whatever you want it to say. Well, sure, but we should spend our lives considering what God meant it to say. What what does He have to say? And here's the the beauty of the Bible what is most important is so clear. What, What is most important about God's word is so clear. There are so many verses that are so confusing. That I will go to my grave not having a clue what they mean, but what God means most to say to me, I'm not curious about. I'm not struggling with. I don't. I don't like. Oh, I need to figure this out even more. I do need to know and understand it and grow in it, uh, but it's clear. Um, and sometimes we use those other ideas of quarreling of words as a distraction from what God uh, wants to say to us in. His gospel. And so we are called, again, as good workers, to to rightly handle uh, the word of truth. And just to say it plainly, if reading the Bible is a legalistic thing in your mind, then you just don't understand God's heart towards you. Like if, if reading your Bible is something that oh I don't I feel guilty about or I just like man, this is God God loves you, God God cares about you, that's why He's given us this. That's why he's revealed himself in this way so that we can know more of him. And we just need to kind of get over that. And then he also goes into, again, so to be a good worker, we're to avoid a reverent babble. So this is just kind of unholy, profane conversation. Uh, and the reality is when we're rightly handling the word of truth, we can know what errors to avoid. Obviously, they're talking about an error, about something about the resurrection that already happened. To be honest with you, we don't know a lot of detail about the particular heresy here in Second Timothy, but it's something along those lines. Either they thought Christians in this moment, like we're already living in the resurrection life uh, or some kind of version of that, and they're spreading that. Uh, around maybe some kind of seeds of what would end up being Gnosticism, this kind of dualistic approach of our bodies are bad, but the Spirit's good, and so we we live completely in the Spirit, whatever it is. uh, Paul is just saying, hey, man, just avoid that. It's unhelpful. There's nothing good there. Remind people of the gospel. Remind people of the son of David who's resurrected from the grave. Uh, Remind people of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Uh, and again, Paul calls these people out. He's not afraid of talking about it. He's not afraid of saying it. He's like, man, that's just gonna be a black hole of your time if you continue to get sucked into all those conversations. It's just kind of different nuances of quarreling about words. It's like I feel like even quarreling about words could be with fellow believers and they're just trying to, you know, use the faith as a hobby and quarrel about all these different things and, and avoiding irreverent babbles with non-believers that maybe even are presenting themselves as Christians but are taking other Christians to a, to a destructive place. He's like, remind people of the gospel, the clarity of who Jesus is, and avoid that irreverent babble. So again, we see two positives, two negatives. Remind people of the gospel, rightly handle the word of truth, don't quarrel about words, and avoid irreverent babble. I think it's also good to remember that we can only remind people what we ourselves are remembering. Like, if we're going to remind people of the gospel, even earlier in Second Timothy, Paul says, remember. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what he's done for you. We can only remind people what we ourselves are remembering. And even those four things, I have them as bullet points right here. It's easy to turn those things into a checklist. Like, okay, I need to remind people of the gospel. I need to rightly handle the word of truth. Don't quarrel about words. Avoid irreverent babble. Babble? Whatever. But if we're not careful, we turn these kinds of things into this legalistic checklist. Like, oh, I'm doing these things. And what we've done there is we have forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten the gospel for ourselves. We've forgotten we need to be nourished by the gospel. We need what Jesus has done for us. Uh, then, in, in, in enjoying that and receiving it, and continually being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ, we can be this good worker who is not ashamed moving on to the second metaphor in verse 20 now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and clay some for honorable use some for dishonorable use therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy useful to the master of the house ready for every good work so, again, in this metaphor, we're vessels. We, we can't get out of that. Everybody is a vessel of some sort. And you're going to be used one way or the other. Uh, and there's two different kinds of vessels and two different kinds of purposes. Gold and silver vessels used for honorable use. And then wood and clay vessels for dishonorable use. And I just want to remind us, metaphors are bendable. So, Paul actually uses elsewhere some similar language, 2 Corinthians 4.7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So there he's using the idea of jars of clay in this positive sense. That we are jars of clay. God has molded us and we're, we hold this treasure together in these jars of clay. But here he's using it in a negative way. I think if we're going to just compare it to today, it's basically the idea of fine china or paper plates. Like that's the difference here. It's a really honorable use, really beautiful um, plate or a, you know, a paper plate. Um, But in this metaphor, the paper plate can actually become fine china. That's important. And obviously to do that, if we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. And so the paper plate becomes this beautiful, honorable vessel by cleansing itself from what is dishonorable. So before we get how, how we do that, how we cleanse ourselves... I want to just highlight two lies that get in the way uh, of this reality. One, we believe we are a clean plate when we are not. We actually think we're this fine china, but we're actually a paper plate. You can see the harm there, obviously, right off, right? Especially if you want to be this fine plate, but you're actually a paper plate, um, then you're just never going to change. You're like, I'm good. Everything's fine. I I am this... Fine, China. It's uh, Jesus and the Pharisees. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-five through twenty-eight. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like a whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this is talking about real people in real time, and it applies to real people in a real time right now, that that we believe ourselves to be this thing, but God would say, no, we're not that thing Uh, at all that's a lie that we can believe that keeps us from cleansing what is dishonorable it is a dishonorable thing that needs to be cleansed here's lie two some of us are fine china but we believe ourselves to be trashy paper plates obviously just the inverse it reminds me of another theologian forky from toy story four have you um have you raise your hand if you've seen toy story four Okay, so it's a good bit of us. There's a good reason for many of you to not have seen it. Uh, And uh, Forky is this little toy who Bonnie, the the girl and the the little kid in the uh, movie, uh, makes Forky, like a craft at school or whatever. And so Forky is a spork and turns it into, she turns it into this little, you know, uh, toy with eyes and everything. And then, um, and so Forky actually goes from being something that was made for uh, the trash to this prized possession, like the most important thing in Bonnie's life. Uh, that's, that's what we have here. But, but in Forky's innate identity, he keeps running for the trash. He's like, and it's, you know, comedy ensues. And so Woody keeps saving him from the trash. Forky keeps running from the trash. He's like, I'm made for trash. I'm supposed to be trash. I am not this prized possession. I am trash. I'm a spork. That's where sporks belong. They get used. They go to the trash. Uh, And and the whole movie is convincing Forky that he matters, that he's loved, that he's enjoyed, uh, that he's prized. Uh, and one of the lies that we believe is that that is not us. The gospel has been spoken over us. We have put our faith in this gospel. We trust it, but there's that lie. You're trash. It's not what you are. You're not that treasure in jars of clay that Paul is talking about. You're not fearfully and wonderfully made. That's not, that's not true of you. That's true of others, but that's not true of you. And to the the degree that that lie continues to seep in, again, that's one of the things we need to cleanse from our lives. That's one of the the dishonorable things that we need to cleanse from our life. But God, we need to trust God that he has made us what he has said he has made us, uh, no matter what the lies that we continue to believe uh, tell us. Um, So, again, one of the things we do to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable is to rid ourselves from these lies so back to the question how do we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable what do we do where do we go to get this kind of cleansing obviously it's not talking about just physical cleansing how do we actually wash the depths of our soul who has some kind of something you can buy on amazon to get that done where do we go what do we do this is the depths of our being kind of cleansing that we need. Where can we go for this kind of deep cleansing? And I think hopefully we even think about that, like, and we see the, just the flippancy or the superficialness of, oh, we just need to act a little better. We just need to be a little better. We need to be about like that good Christian I know. We need to be, I need to make some better decisions. I've made bad decisions, and if I just make some better ones, then I'll be, I'll be better. Again, this isn't a completing your list of good Christian things or good moral things to do. This deep kind of soul level cleansing is like the song says, Foul to the fount I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the kind of cleansing that has to happen here. It's Psalm 51 seven. This is David. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This is David crying out to God saying, hey, if you don't cleanse me, I am not going to be clean. There's only one person I can run to 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 enjoy, to get, to receive the kind of cleansing that my soul needs. This is Zechariah 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This is every one of us. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him and... To him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is 2 Timothy 1 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. As Timothy says it so clearly, Jesus is the only one that can make us clean. He's the only place we can go to get this soul-level cleaning. And when this happens, this is what happens, looking back up in verse 19 in chapter 2. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his. So, So Jesus cleanses us and sets us apart as holy and beloved and blameless and in that we are his that we might be useful and ready for every good work again when we get this kind of cleansing from Jesus that is the only thing that is going to make us this good worker that's the only one the only thing that's going to make us this honorable vessel obviously none of us can make a paper plate turn into fine china Jesus can Jesus is the only one that can take a sinner and turn him into a saint. Jesus is the only one that can make us the Lord's. And so he is who we have to go to for this cleansing. But I think it's even good, like when we think about uh, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his. That's God's sovereignty. That's his. He is going to, to preserve those who are his. That's his, it's his work. And, and I think sometimes, again, we think about his sovereignty and we think, man, that's his. So it doesn't really matter what we do. But obviously, Paul knows we're thinking that. And so he goes on and says, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So God is sovereign. God is good. God knows who are his. And so if we're the ones that proclaim his name, then we need to actually leave and depart from iniquity. We need to see that, oh, man, I believe that I'm good and I'm really not. Or man, God has made me his prized possession, but I continue to think of myself as trash. And as often as we think those thoughts, we need to flee from them and flee to Jesus, the only one that can make us clean. That we actively, he's done this in us, and so we continue to depart from iniquity. This is the picture of cleansing ourselves, remembering we are gods, realizing that and acting like it. This is just the the picture of repentance. This is the, the beauty of repentance. This is why the Christian life is all about repentance. That's why Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the door, he said, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. Because it's, it, as, the, as a Christian, we do this when we come to faith. We realize we need Jesus. We place our faith in him. And then as Christians, we're just continually doing that. We're continually, God, here I am again. Here I am again. Here I am again. And, and the beauty of repentance is that it's something that we get to continue to do and continue to enjoy God's grace for us over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, to be honest with you, I don't repent near as much as I need to. I want the Lord to grow me in this. I want the Spirit to to move. And every time I do, I'm like, oh, man, I need much more of this. There's more sin in my life than I even realize. God, would you help me see it so that I can walk in repentance in these areas and enjoy the freedom that you have for me? I was thinking about even in these moments just come, you know, when you're not expecting them. We were praying uh, as a staff this week, and we were praying. We were actually talking about just some uh, different things within the church and There's just an area where I was like, man, I have not considered who God is here. I'm not considered what he's doing. I've wanted to act out of my own power. I've wanted to try to figure this out. Uh, I've wanted to move and and order things in such a way or say things in such a way that this just kind of is fixed as opposed to, wait, God, you're, you're here. You're present. You're a part of this struggle. And I've just been completely overlooking you. And there was just a freedom and a sweetness that came from confessing that, enjoying Jesus' forgiveness for me, and getting to say, oh, God, who are you? What are you doing? What are you doing here? We need to, this is a picture of repentance. That's what it looks like to cleanse ourselves from what is uh, dishonorable and, and continue to pursue what God would have for us. And now we'll close with... These last, Paul gives two different pictures of honorable use and dishonorable use. So in verse 22, so flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. He kind of reiterates that. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. What a phrase there! Just real patiently enduring evil. Like, there's oftentimes Paul calls out evil, and yet he's telling Timothy, in this moment, you need to patiently endure evil. And so here's the wisdom that we need from God and shows how do we know which is which? Well, we need God's help, don't we? Verse 25 Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil and being. T- uh, sorry, senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so even if you just think of the the, the honorable use, there's these like seven things that, that Paul is calling us to. It's just pursuing God with God's people. That's what verse 22 is about. Fleeing youthful fashions, pursuing righteousness, faith, and love along with those who call upon the Lord from his pure heart. Like that's what God's calling us to do, to, to be useful. And the one thing I want to say here is, Brothers and sisters, if you're not in deep community, if you're not pursuing these things along with those that have a pure heart, uh, then you're missing out on a a significant aspect of uh, God's word for you, God's hope, God's desire for you. And here's the thing, we believe in community, we believe in community groups, you can be in a community group for 10 years and still not be doing this. Like you have to choose to be in this kind of community. It's like you know, asking wives to submit to their husbands. Like husbands can't make what I just chose to use a hot button topic as an example right now. Um, and then, uh, but you, like there's no there's no oh hey I'm making you submit no that's that's abuse. Like a wife has to joyfully and willingly submit or no submission is going to happen. We can't make people do things. And yet so often we think community like, oh, we want it. We almost want people to make us do it. Or we want it to be, you know, given to us in this perfect kind of way as opposed to, oh, I actually have to choose to do this. I have to pursue this. I mean, this is what he says. Flee youthful passions and pursue. That's you making a choice to you were doing this thing. And now you're going to go on and pursue this deep community uh, you're going to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those that call upon the Lord from a pure heart. And so I would just encourage you, brother and sister, to, to consider what it looks like for you to take a step deeper into community. To actually laying your real life before real people and crying out to the real God in the midst of that. That's what we, whether we're in a community group or not, we have to embrace that. And so we're pursuing God with God's people not getting distracted by controversies that are, again, just there for the sake of controversies. We're being kind, we're teaching, we're, again, patiently enduring evil. Uh, Richard Sibbs again, this passage just made me think of his uh, old book called The Bruised Reed, and he says this. He said, men must not be too curious in prying into the weaknesses of others. We should labor, rather, to see what they have that is for eternity. To incline our heart to love them, that into that weakness, which, I'm sorry, our heart to love them than into that weakness, which in the spirit of God will in time consume. Like, are you too active in looking into others weaknesses? Like how, how good are you at actually peering into and noticing what the spirit of God is doing as opposed to the things that are, are struggling. And, and again, I love sips. like the spirit of God is going to consume those things. They're going to be gone one day. Um, and so it's not like we can't talk about those, But is that the only thing that we see? Is that what we're bent towards? Uh, We should patiently endure evil. And then correct opponents with gentleness, hoping for their repentance and salvation. So these are opponents that are obviously non-believers. It's not just someone that we disagree with about a certain topic. This is someone that we think they're not believing in who Jesus is, and we actually want to correct them. But it's with the hope that they may actually come to know and love Jesus. And then we get the picture of dishonorable use. And I just want to, what I was, again, when we juxtapose the positive and the negative, there's those seven things that we're called to here. And just look at how many dishonorable things. It's kind of like a black hole of just getting sucked up into all kinds of whatever. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And this last days is obviously including the day he's in right now. He's talking about the other side because he's assuming Timothy is actually going to face these things. It's not just like, you know, uh, end times kinds of stuff. It's just in this era there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Kids, you all hear that one? Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. And those two men—that's—we um, don't see this in. Uh, the book of Exodus, but uh, in early church history, it seems like those were the magicians that opposed Moses when he first uh, went and was before Pharaoh. So Paul is uh, comparing the, the people that Timothy's encountering with those two men. They looked like they knew what they were doing. They actually did some pretty miraculous things. Uh, they looked like they were powerful, but they were denying where real power actually came from. But did you hear all of those things? Like, I want you to just think about the difference between, as we're thinking about being uh, this gospel usefulness, the other reason we're using this that is like there's a kind of usefulness that flows out of wholeness, that flows out of, man, God has done everything for me, and then there's a kind of usefulness that needs to be needed, that needs to be useful, that is clawing, that is grabbing, that is desiring, that is hoping, that is kind of trying to get what it can get when it can get it. And this last list is, is all of that, isn't it? The, the, there's like the, the simple reality. Like just again, like it's seven things compared to 24 things. The seven things that, that of honorable use. And they're all pretty simple and straightforward. I'm not saying they're easy. I'm not saying they're easy to apply or that they don't, it can't be complicated in different situations. But they're all pretty simple and straightforward. And you can just see the, the endlessness of this last list. Like these are things that just promise, but keep asking. You love money, and so you get money, but you just need more. You're arrogant, you're abusive, you're disobedient to parents, you're ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Again, I think of even loving pleasure over loving God. There's just that pleasure, and then you enjoy that pleasure, and then you just need more pleasure. Like, this pleasure was good, but now I can experience more pleasure in this other way. As opposed to, man, there's a joy and a fullness that comes from God that actually sacrifices certain aspects of pleasure. That gives up certain aspects of pleasure. Look at Jesus' life. Look at the Apostle Paul. Like, we don't have a life that just, a life that pursues pleasure is a life that does not love God. Again, my point is there's a difference between seeking for fullness and acting out of fullness. Between searching for cleansing and responding to being washed clean by Jesus. Those are the different pictures we get here. As a Christian right now, you are loved. You might be like Forky thinking you're trash, but that is a lie. You might have a legalistic bent, thinking you're better than others, but God's love covers even that. So you get to turn to him in that. I think even as we think about gospel usefulness, we got to think that before we do anything for God, before you even know you are a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed or a vessel for honorable use, you are loved by God. That order is so important and we get it wrong so often. Before we do any of those things, we have to know we are loved by God. When we start to do those things in order to be loved by God, it just goes wrong in all kinds of different ways. I want you to think for a moment what role you find yourself most struggling in in life. Maybe it's being a mom, maybe it's desiring to be a mom, maybe it's being an employee or a friend. Just consider what role are you struggling most in life right now? And now take a moment and see yourself in a beautiful garden. That although this feels like a struggle, this this beautiful garden represents that struggle actually in your life and that role. Again, some kind of role you maybe don't think you're being useful in. Maybe a role you think you have no energy to complete the task. And just consider yourself in this beautiful garden, but, but the role that's, so there's no energy, there's no way, there's no way for you to fulfill this role. And so where are we stuck? What do we do in that moment? But then you realize, and it's actually been there all along, that there is a beautiful fountain in the middle of the garden full of the most delicious and refreshing living water. I think just like we would have no trouble admitting we need water to continue to live, we need to have no trouble committing to the reality that we need Jesus to live, that we need Jesus to be that living water in this area. prophesying about Jesus in this way. Jeremiah 17:13 says, "O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water." Brothers and sisters, let's not forsake the Lord. He has come to be the living water we need. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now for this living water. Refresh our souls in you. Where we have been looking for fulfillment, turn us back to you. Spirit, do this miraculous work in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.